We live in a time that is kind of confusing because there's a lot of information right now, isn't there? Uh, we almost are overloaded with information to the point where it's hard to tell the difference between truth and what's not quite true. Uh, for example, uh, recently we've heard the term that's popped out in the last year that's become very prominent called fake news. But I read in the Western Livestock Journal the other day that they're now having lawsuits against those who label meat that is not meat. They're calling it fake meat. <laughs> and then the dairy people are very unhappy with soy milk. And so there's a big difference between the truth and against things that are false. And that's really what I want to talk about today. The necessity for discernment that you and I must have if we are to know what God's word actually says and the truth. So when we talk about the cowboy realm, uh, somebody might say, well, what do you know, Mike, about the cowboy realm? Well, actually, for years, I was a wage-earning cowboy. And I've cowboyed around different places, and then I even got a degree in animal science. That and the $3 will get you a cup of coffee. But the cowboy either puts up or he shuts up, and we're dealing with reality. These are patterns that work. You've got to get the job done no matter what. This idea of get her done is the important thing. There are no excuses, no matter how bad the weather is, whether it's snowing, whether it's uh, really, really bad. Doesn't that look just wonderful to be out there just freezing to your very core? I mean, the cowboy life is not exactly glamorous. But there's reason for that, and it's to preserve the life and to raise uh, healthy beef. And you think that uh, men might be soft-hearted? They absolutely are. They love these little calves. Uh, yet cowboy work is not always easy, but it's necessary, even if it means throwing hay in the wintertime. That's not an easy job. But it can also include roping cattle at Brandon time, no matter how big they are. I heard my son Matt throwing a big loop over a longhorn cow or how fast they are. That's me catching a steer right there by the hind feet. Or how small they are. That's Steve roping them and dragging them to the Brandon fire. But I want to share with you a poem that kind of illustrates this idea of, of well, what would we call it? Almost the truth, fake truth, or better yet, pertinent truth. You know what Pertinere is? It's almost close to. Well, they called him Pertinere Perkins. For unless that fellow lied, he'd Pertinere done most everything that he had ever tried. He'd Pertinere been a preacher, and he'd Pertinere roped a bear. He'd met up with Comanches once, and he Pertinere lost his hair. He'd Pertinere wed an heiress who had money by the keg. He'd Pertinere caught the measles, and he'd Pertinere broke his leg. He'd pertinent been a trail boss, and according to his claim, he'd pertinent shot Bill Hickok, which had pertinent won him fame. He'd pertinent rode some Bronx, upon which no one else had stuck. In fact, he was the fella who had pertinent drowned the duck, whatever that means. <laughs> now, mostly all the cowboys on the lazy SB spread, they took his talking with a grin and let him fight his head, but... One Tom McGinnis told it to him kind of rough. He said, you're riding for an outfit now where Pertner ain't enough. 
We tie our last robes to the horn, and what we catch we hold. And partner is one alibi we never do unfold. In fact, right now I tell you that no words I ever hear sound quite so plain dang useless as that little pair, Pertinier. Well, that's how old Tom McGinnis told it to him, and he laid it on the line, and like a heap of preaching talk, it sounded mighty fine. But one day, Tom McGinnis, while riding off alone, he lamed his horse and had to borrow a neighbor Nestor's roan to ride back to the ranch upon to be in time for sup, but somewhere along the way, them Nestors held him up. And there was heck to pay. Why, well, I never stole no horse, just borrowed it to ride. But them Nestors hated cowboys, and they told him that he lied. They cussed him for a horse thief, and they'd caught him with the goods, so they set right out to string him up in a poor by, nearby patch of woods. They had old Tom surrounded, their guns all fixed to shoot. It looked like this poor cowboy had heard his last owl hoot. They tied a rope around his neck and throwed it over a limb, and Tom McGinnis pert near knowed this was the last of him. And suddenly a shot rang out from somewhere up the hill, and then Nestor dropped the rope and ran like Nestor sometimes will when bullets get to whizzing. Tom's heart leapt up with hope to see old Perkins come riding at a lope. Looks like I got here pert near just in time, old Perkins said. To see them nesters hang ya. Tom's face got kind of red. You pert near did, he pert near said. They pert near had me strung. You're looking at a cowboy now that's pert near been hung. And also one that changed his mind for no words ever said can sound as sweet as pert near when a man's been pert near dead. They like that. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Well, I want to share some cowboy logic with you. And, and cowboy logic comes from cowboys having a lot of time uh, to think. And you're out there watching cows eat grass and get rid of what they ate, and it just gives you plenty of time to think about things. <laughs> But, you know, cowboy work is, is important, but it's based on doing the truth, not fake truth, not pretend truth. Uh, it isn't the truth. Uh, cowboy work is about doing the real thing. That's fake truth right there. And cowboy work is about doing the real thing. But this morning I want to kind of work through some logic in terms of defining what truth really is. There are three key points that I want to share with you. The first one is, what is the basis of truth? The second one is, is the Bible trustworthy? And the third is, does God exist? And I'll tell you why I'm reaching or speaking on those three subjects, because this is an issue today in our society. Um, here in Southern Corinthians, I mean Southern California, we find a lot of things that are leading the nation in terms of changing culture. I talked to my friend Mac a few months ago back up in Winnemucca, and he says, we don't encounter the kind of things that you do. And I said, well, you know, you're in a little oasis of conservative culture there, but down here uh, in Southern California, we find people inoculated, if you will, to the truth. 
So we have to ask ourselves, what is the basis of truth in the first place? We might ask ourselves, is, is modern science trustworthy? I mean, I don't know whether to drink coffee or not. They're constantly coming up with a change of whether it's good for you or whether it's not good for you. So I finally decided whether it's good or not, I like it, I'm going to drink it. But here's the question. Can we count on our conscience? Will our conscience ever betray us? Can we think about a conscience that is active in a culture that is change, has changing morality in it? The things that we're seeing on television, the things that we're hearing... It's an interesting thing. How many of you have heard of C.S. Lewis? He was a famous author, theologian, excellent. C.S. Lewis said this one time. He said, there's a particular thing about man. He likes to think he makes the rules for moral conduct and standards of good behavior, but he doesn't keep those standards, nor can he. It is therefore evident that the real standards of morality do not come from man himself, but from a higher source. Something that is beyond man's ability to know or keep them. Even desire to keep the rules that he thinks are right. A higher standard points to a supreme or a divine being that exists beyond mankind. That's a good observation. So then that raises the question, where do we look towards uh, to find this higher morality? Jesus said an astonishing thing. You know what he said if you know if you're familiar with the scripture. Jesus said, I am the way, the and the life. And so if Jesus is the truth, this is an interesting thing. When he was standing before Pilate at that judgment, just before his crucifixion, which he willingly submitted to, because it was the plan of God that he would sacrifice himself for our sins, he is standing before Pilate. <clears throat> And as he's talking, Pilate asks the question, what is truth? It's interesting that a leader of the Roman government at that time saw life only from man's point of view. He had no sense of what was right or wrong. He had no idea about the living God. He didn't even understand what the purpose of life was. And yet the very Son of God was standing before him and he didn't even recognize him. How many others have tried to recognize mankind's Savior outside of Christ, looking towards man himself to be his own Savior? We're always looking for the uberman, the superman, to be our Savior, but we are neglecting to look at Jesus Christ himself as the ultimate and true Savior. The interesting thing is that three days after his death and the Pharisees and those that hated God's plan and worse hated Christ, they thought they had done away with him when they killed him. We'll wrap that up. We'll just kill him and bury him. But because he was the Son of God, because he was sent by God, he overcame death and he raised from the dead three days later. And not only that, he stuck around for 40 days showing himself to his disciples that he was indeed alive and true, truly raised from the dead. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, the Apostle Paul gives us this account. He said, For I delivered to you, first of all, that... Jesus was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen by Peter and then by the twelve and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part are alive at the present, that is at the time he wrote that, but some have died. 
And after that, he was seen by James and then also the apostles and last of all, by me. Paul was an eyewitness to the risen Christ, as were these 500 other people. That is not mass hysteria. That is not hypnosis. That is not drug-induced. That is the reality of the risen Christ who presented himself before people. You remember that individual account that he had with Thomas? Thomas says, I'm not going to believe unless, you know, and he gives his standards. Jesus shows up to Peter appearing in a locked room in front of others, and he said, or excuse me, to uh, Thomas, and he says, here I am. You, you, hold, you look at my hand. You, you put your fingers in those nail holes. You, you stick your hand in my side. He said, I want you to touch and feel and understand that I'm not a ghost or an apparition. I am the risen Christ. What was Thomas's response? You remember? My Lord and my God. He believed. So the second question is, is the Bible trustworthy? We have just read from the Bible. These verses I quoted to you from 1 Corinthians 15. Do you believe it? Uh, Do we have any reason to believe it? Do we have any reason, perhaps someone would ask, to question whether the Bible is true or not? Let me give you a few facts here that might help you. Number one. We have 66 books written by 40 authors over a 1,500-year period of time, and that has no contradictions. Does that sound like something that is natural and normal to the way man normally operates? That sounds miraculous to me. This means that the Holy Spirit, according to Paul's writing, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, that there was a throughout the entire Scriptures the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit superintending how and what should be written. From Genesis to Revelation, that plan was there. And that plan is that man is a sinner, but God is a redeemer. And that redemption is in Jesus Christ. Sixty-six books by 40 different authors over 1,500 years is not an accident. Second point, the canon of Scripture. Accepted books of the Bible include both the Old Testament, which was well known and even quoted by Jesus and the disciples. That had been around for not only hundreds of years, but over a thousand years. That was settled. And then almost 1,800 years ago, the canon of Scripture, that is the inclusion of the proper Bible, both Old and New Testament, was put together and authorized, and that is what we have today. Point number Three, over 114 prophecies have been fulfilled by Jesus Christ during his lifetime. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? And they're recorded in the Bible. Point number four, the Bible is the number one bestseller of all books in the world. That continues to be. Point number five, there are 2.6 billion Christians in the world, that's 33.5% of the world's population that that depend on the Bible translated into their language for inspiration and guidance and for understanding of who God and man is and what God's plan is. In comparison to the Muslim religion, which is 18% of the world's population, and most of those are by birth and not by conversion. Point number six, the modern Bible translations have been shown to be highly accurate when compared to the original manuscripts, and that's how we make that comparison. 
And point number seven, the Old Testament very accurately reflects the various times and locations in which it was written, and modern archaeology continues to prove its accuracy today. Can we trust the Bible? I'd like to give, I'd like you to give me a reason why we can't trust the Bible. Somebody said, listen, pastor, I've seen contradictions in the Bible. Well, they don't say they've seen contradictions. They say they've heard that there are contradictions. Because when I ask them, please show me what the contradiction is, their answer is, uh, well, I don't know. I'll find it somewhere and get back to you. They never do. Because there are no contradictions in the scripture. Let's go to the third point. Does God exist? I want to use some cowboy logic here in, in terms of thinking just, just plain common sense. Uh, recently we have seen and were saddened by the death of Billy Graham. Uh, Billy died just short of his <clears throat> 100th birthday. And when Billy Graham first started preaching right here in Southern California in Los Angeles uh, back in the mid-50s, uh, his message was, repent of your sins and believe in the Son of God, who is Jesus Christ. That was his message then, but things have changed from that time to the present. Now what we find evangelists encountering is not in convincing people of the existence of the Son of God, but they're having a hard time convincing people of the existence of God. In other words, atheism is really taking inroads into our culture in an amazing and sad sort of way. And I want to talk about that just a little bit this morning. I want to deal with two things. Number one, uh, the arguments of, uh, the arguments against God's existence. Number one, the existence of evil. And number two, the issue of death. And there are some logical things to think about. In regards to that. So let's talk about evil's existence. Some have said this. If evil exists and it exists at such a high level, I can't believe that God would exist and allow that in the world today. Therefore, because evil is so abundant, God must not exist. But I want to tell you right now that the presence, the existence of evil is not a good excuse for disqualifying the existence of God. But let's look at that a little bit further. When we say something is bad or there is evil, how do we know that that's evil? How do we judge something to be wrong? And, and the answer to that is we judge something to be wrong on the, on the moral standard that if that's wrong, something else is right. In other words, there has to be a right and a wrong. If, there, if we're going to condemn the wrong, we have to be able to appreciate the right. Is that not true? That's logic. So if we say there is evil, then we must say that there is good. And if there is good, then where does good come from? Good then points to a moral code by which we distinguish between the two. We're just using some cowboy logic here, folks. Was the music good this morning? I thought it was good, too. How's the st- what's the standard by which we compare good? Uh, I never heard a note played out of tune. But if a note had been played out of tune, it would have been kind of sour, kind of 
made us unhappy, uneasy. There are things in the world today that are very, very obviously evil. We cannot deny that evil exists. We had ISIS. We had all of the terrible things that are going on in Syria right now with the killing of those people, those over 40 people by that gas. That's evil. That's pure evil. But then we see people giving of themselves, their money, their time, their effort to help the homeless and to minister to the poor. And so if we have a standard by which we judge something to be evil or something to be good, that's a moral standard. But where does that moral standard come from? C.S. Lewis already has told us it doesn't come from man because he can't do that. It's beyond him. And so Rabbi Zachariah says this, if there's a moral standard that tells us the difference between right and wrong, then there must be a moral code giver. And that moral code giver comes from a higher standard than man. It comes from God. Where do you think the Ten Commandments came from? You know the Ten Commandments. I won't name them all. But two of them are thou shalt not lie or bear false witness. The other is thou shalt not steal. Now, if you're an honest man, I, I won't ask you to raise your hand or you ladies. Uh, have you ever stolen anything, even a little thing, when you were a kid? Well, if you did, you not only are a thief, you've broken God's standards. And if you didn't steal anything when you were a kid or any time in your life, you're a liar. The Bible tells us that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, but the Bible counters that. Uh, the, excuse me, the atheist says there is no God, but the Bible says the fool has said there is no God. Perhaps you've not heard of Richard Dawkins. He's a renowned atheist, and uh, he not only claims there is no God, but he claims some interesting things that I want to share with you very briefly this morning. Uh, his logic kind of goes like this. If there is no evil, then there is no morality. The same is true. If there's no morality, there's no evil. If there's no morality, then you are free to live and do as you please, regardless, regardless of whether it hurts others. Furthermore, atheism disregards the notion of accountability. And if there's no accountability, then there is no God or a final day of judgment when evildoers will be punished. He questions why be good if good is defined as doing what one chooses to do to please yourself. The reward for earthly pleasures is pleasure itself and there's nothing else in life. He says this, if there is no such thing as good or evil, then there is no such thing as sin. If there is no sin, then there is no hell or its punishment. And if there's no hell to be saved from, then Jesus doesn't need to rescue us and he's therefore out of a job. Listen, folks, that's blasphemy. That Jesus is out of a job because we don't need to be saved because there's no accountability before a righteous and holy God. He denies the truth. The entirety of his train of thought seeks to destroy the Bible's revelation of the soul's existence after physical death. His message is live for now. There isn't anything else. What a sad, pathetic philosophy. Amen. Thank you for that. And yet I have heard as a pastor, and I've been pastoring for almost 35 years, of atheists who claimed all their life there was no God, who died on their beds in fear, 
because deep down in their souls they really knew that they were going to meet a God that they would be accountable to. Let's talk about the second issue, and that is death, and, and I want to be sensitive to this. Um, I want to be very sensitive because there might be some here today that have perhaps lost somebody fairly recently. I have lost some of those who are dear to me, a father, a mother, a brother, and others. And so I do not treat death lightly, but I want to give you a perspective about death. We, we damn death and, and we think we, that death is a curse from God, but I want you to kind of think through that again and use a little bit of cowboy logic by answering this question. What would this world be like if there was no death? Right now, the world's population is about 7.4 billion. Can you imagine what it would be like if it was hundreds of billions? This world, because there was no death? There would be standing room only. There would be nothing to eat, and yet people would be starving to death and couldn't die because there was no death. Women and children would be suffering immeasurably. The agony would be horrible. There would be no green grass, no leaves, no, no parks, no places of oasis for our souls. There would be no, no pets, no livestock, nothing that we enjoy today. Because people were dying, or excuse me, people were starving and couldn't die because there was no death. Can you imagine how horrible that would be? Men would beg God for death, but wouldn't receive it because death was simply not possible. So let me ask you, under those kind of immense suffering, with no death available to allow them to escape, would death be a curse or would it be a blessing? There is a blessing to that. And the thing is that God has a purpose for everything. When he said to Adam at the fall, in the day that you eat of it, which really means in the day that you disobey me, you shall surely die. Man's life began to deteriorate from that time, even though because of pure genetics in the original man, he lived over 900 years. Nevertheless, the death process began to take place. And we have been the recipients of that as the descendants of Adam. Death is inescapable, and yet God has a plan for that because God, Jesus said this. He said, he who believes in me, yet though he dies, though he dies, yet shall he live. We'll call for an altar call in a minute. Jesus said, he, though, yet though a man dies, yet shall he live. If he believes in me, what is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that the human soul lives on beyond the physical body itself. In fact, in Revelation 21.4, we're promised this to believers. God will wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. I want you to understand, beloved, that today we live in a world where there is sin, where there is pain, where there is suffering and death, and there is deception and foolishness. But God says the time is coming when all of that will pass away and those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will move into a realm of eternity where all of that is gone. And it will be delightful. Does God exist? Absolutely. Let me give you a few... Uh, concepts to consider. Uh, Number one, what are the proofs of God? 
the first would be the nature and the seasons. The Bible tells us in Genesis that God uh, created all that there is, everything having the capacity to reproduce its own kind. We do not get walnuts from a peach tree. We always get peaches, although a variety of peaches and apples as well. Apples from apple trees. That genetic capacity, that DNA is there. So nature itself, with its seasons, gives us the order of the universe, which is consistent with the cycle of life that we see all around us. The second is changed lives, from spiritual death to spiritual life. And I'm going to talk about a story about that in a minute. Number three is the Holy Spirit, the inner conviction that God is real, that he is there, and that he is true, and that we can trust and believe in him. The next is a sense of impending judgment by the ultimate judge of men. The next one is an inner yearning to be at peace with our creator. St. Augustine said this, that God has created us with a, with a dependence and a need for him, and there is a void in our lives until man has basically filled that void with his existence and relationship with God. The next is life without God, quite frankly, my friends, makes absolutely no sense. Think about that. And then here's another one. What proof is there that God does not exist? Haven't seen any. But we could be lied to with fake proof. And probably the fact that there is morality existing in the world because we know right from wrong, and because there is love, that comes from outside the framework of a dog-eat-dog result of evolution. So what's the answer? What do we... What do we do with all this information? The bottom line is that it's God's salvation. Just as the cowboy seeks out the missing calf and goes and finds it, throws it across his uh, saddle there, if his horse will put up with it, and, and rides back and brings it back to safety. It's kind of like Jesus giving the story of the man, the shepherd who went after the lost sheep. Same thing. God is always seeking after you and I to let himself be known to us that we might receive him and receive his salvation. But do we need salvation? Do we really need salvation? I mean, uh, I'll be quite honest with you. I, I, my father was a world champion horse trainer. Uh, by say world champion, he had won uh, two or three world titles. That's not an easy thing to do. Winning it once, you might say you got lucky. But when you win it again and again, that's pure capacity and ability. My dad said that he didn't need God. In fact, he made one of the most interesting statements. He said, I'm going to live forever. Really, Dad. But one day, a car ran into him and put him in the hospital, and he was in intensive care, in a coma, on life support, and was like a piece of white meat on a table, being supported totally by what was going in and coming out of him artificially. Several days later, when he finally came out of a coma, he saw me sitting beside his bed, and he grabbed my hand and started weeping. He couldn't speak because he had a uh, tracheotomy tube in his throat, but he just started cry crying and shaking like a child. And suddenly, I'd become the father, and he was the child. And during that time of realizing his own weakness as a human being, 
we had a time to talk after he came out of the hospital and I shared with him the fact that God still loved him. And he knew that because he had heard the Bible read from his mother's knee when he was a child. But my dad accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior in his late 70s and was a Christian until the day he died. He was so ignorant of the Bible, bless his heart, that I would call him up and say, Dad, are you reading your Bible? And he'd say, yeah, I am. And I'd say, where are you at? And he'd say, let me check. He said, I'm on page 372. (laughs) So let me give you four points of salvation. First of all, Jeremiah 17.9 says this, For the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I cringe when I hear people say, oh, he was a good-hearted fellow. Well, not according to the Scripture, because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. He may have seemed that way, but ultimately, without Christ in our lives, we are our natural carnal human being and that has the capacity to be a sinner and do evil things, whether they're thought or done in action. So the Bible tells us in 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Do you know what that's saying? That's saying that we're a liar. If you say you don't have sin, you're a liar, according to God's standard. Now, you can take that up with God and say, I'll discuss that with him when I stand before him. But my friend, when you stand before God, if you haven't admitted your sin, that will be a very brief encounter. Romans 3:10 through 11 says, "As it is written, there is none righteous, no not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God." So that's the first point. Number one, all are sinners. Second point, Christ died in our place. Again, Paul speaks from uh, in Romans to us. He says, "But God demonstrates His love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us." We have the impression that when I'm good enough, I'll come to God. What does that mean? You're, you're going to be a faithful husband or wife. You're going to give up the drinking or the drugs or the betting or the gambling or the lying or the, or the misrepresentation on your income tax. When, when you get all that squared away, your pile of good deeds is going to weigh your outweigh your pile of of bad deeds. And and when I'm with that big pile of good deeds, I'm going to come to God and say, what do you think of this? And God is going to say, all of your righteousness is as filthy rags. doesn't count. Your best, my friends, does not count. Because what you're saying is, open that door to heaven. I deserve to go in there. Let me in. I'm as good as Jesus Christ. And you know that's a lie. And so the Bible says that we're all sinners. So number one, we're all sinners. Number two, Christ died in our place. God demonstrates his love towards us that while we're, sin- while we're yet sinners, while we were unqualified, when we didn't care, when we didn't even know that we needed a Savior, <laughs> Christ died for us because he loved us. He didn't love us because we were worthy. He loved us because he was worthy. Point number three, faith in Jesus Christ is our salvation. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, If you 
confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's as simple as that. We trust him. We place our salvation in his hands, not in our own. And finally, point number four, God's grace is activated by faith that saves us. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is, what? The grace of God. You've heard the old saying there, but for the grace of God go I. Truer words were never spoken, my friends. And so we're not saved by our own works, but we're saved by the grace of God. And the reason is nobody can boast on that. We know that some people have more ability than others. That's a fact of life. And some would say, well, I have enough ability to save myself. And others might say, I wished I did, but I can't because I don't have enough capacity. God says, no, level playing field. All are saved by the grace of God, not by their works or capacity or ability. Does that really work in real life? Let me tell you the story of Jay Smith. Uh, Back in the 40s, when many of you were not born, some of you were not born, there was a horse horse showman by the name of Jay Smith. He was really, really good. He won... Many, many championships in the horse show arena. I knew of him because he was in competition with my dad, who was also showing at that time. And when they would go to the horse show, it was kind of, did Jay Smith win or did Chick Sheridan win? It was one or the other. And Jay was fantastic at showing horses and doing well. He was a superb horseman. But his ego and John Barleycorn got a hold of him, and he became an alcoholic. And the next time I saw Jay was in the early 60s in Burbank when I came out of the bowling alley down there after having a long day of riding in that area. My dad lived down there. Here's this humble, unshaven, dirty, smelly, shaking man begging quarters and nickels so that he could go buy a bottle of Thunderbird wine. And he would drink that bottle until he passed out and crashed in the bushes. He was a shadow of his former self. Years later, he was, he appeared, uh, almost 20 years later, he appeared at the ranch, uh, Wayside Honor Ranch, which was a drunk farm, and we, I was in charge of the horses and the cattle there. And uh, they brought Jay out. He's a man now in his, in his 70s. Sober, clean had gone through the DT's process, the delirium tremens and the, the hallucinations and all of that, and he began to work for us out there, and he did a good job. His, physically, he was cleaned up, but he still didn't know Christ. And one day we got to talking about things of faith, and Jay came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. What a fantastic thing. I remember that day in the saddle room there we were talking, and Jay sat down and started weeping for his sins and asked Jesus Christ to come into his life. And folks, it changed him. Now, we know that sometimes these kind of conversions can be temporary or emotional or dramatic. Jay went home, and I thought, you know, Uh, I don't know if I want to call and talk to his brother, who was Mark Smith, famous horse trainer. 
But I did, and I said, how's Jay doing? And he said, by golly, Sheridan, he says, you've changed his life. He's a, he's a different man. He's sober, and he's doing well. And I said, Jay, it wasn't, or uh, Mark, it wasn't me. It was God. We went down to see him a couple of months later. He had been out of, uh, out of a controlled situation for about five months, and he was dressed up in a tuxedo, and he had a pony that was doing special tricks, and he put a show on for us for an hour that would amaze you. This man never lost the capacity to be an excellent horseman. And we thought as we saw him sober and up to speed in terms of doing all that God had enabled him to be able to do, what a wonderful gift it was to say thank you. A couple of months later, I got news that Jay had passed on and gone to be home with the Lord. And Jay's story reminds me of a poem that I want to share with you called The Touch of the Master's Hand. In fact, when I was learning to recite this, I had a hard time getting through it without breaking up and losing it because this poem reminded me so much of Jay. But it goes like this. It was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it was scarcely worth his while to spend much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks, cried he. Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar, then two, only two, two dollars and three. Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three, but no, from the room afar in the back, a man came forward and picking up the violin and picking it up with a bow, he wiped off the dust from the old violin and tightening the loosened strings and played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angel sings. In the reply, "Twas the touch of the master's hand. Now many a man with a life out of tune is battered and scarred with sin, and he's auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once, he's going twice, he's going, and he's almost gone. Then the master comes, and the thoughtless crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand.